welcome to the Museum of Femininity, a podcast where I, Charlotte Appleyard, discuss random topics of interest that relate to social history, art and material culture through a female lens. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the Museum of Femininity. In today's episode, we will be discussing and exploring the very interesting story of the matchstick women strike in 1888 and this was a very pivotal moment in British history in terms of prompting unionism and really provoking a discussion about workers rights and conditions in Victorian London and it's fascinating the major role women played in these sorts of movements. So I thought it would be really interesting to delve into this a bit by exploring a specific event in history. So let's get started. In 1888, London's East End was a place with a mythical quality conjured up by the newspaper industry who thrived on salacious stories. The East End proved to be the perfect setting for tales of depravity to intrigue more well-to-do Victorians who lived in more savoury parts of the city. In recent years, you see, there had been somewhat of an exodus into the newly built suburbs, which attracted middle-class working individuals who could also benefit from the train lines into the city centre thus leaving areas like the East End sadly neglected and poverty-stricken. Once more, a large part of it was surrounded by water and home to many docks, and became a hub for untoward behaviour. In fact, the whole of the East End developed a reputation for being a cesspit of crime and debauchery, and along with these associations, East Enders too fell victim to these negative stereotypes. One well-known insult sums this up quite well. Quote, a shabby man from Paddington might be one of the respectable poor, but the same man coming from Bethnal Green was an East Ender. The bug powder must be reached for and the spoons locked up. Life could be seen as rather bleak for girls and women. They struggled to get secure domestic jobs because they were considered rough, leaving them with little choice but to work in factories. One of the largest employers at the time was Bryant and May, who manufactured matchsticks. The company was formed in 1843 by two Quakers, William Bryant and Francis May, in the late 19th century. They operated out of an imposing red-bricked factory in Bow, which in the 1880s employed around 5,000 people, mostly women and girls, and many of Irish descent. This is the story of these women, and how in the summer of 1888 they revolted against their poor treatment by going on strike and as a result improving the lives of factory workers in England. Matchstick women, even today, capture the imagination. To us, they are lively and perhaps unladylike girls with thick cockney accents and a spunky demeanour. 
an image painted over the years by a slew of plays and musicals written in their honour in the 1960s. However, within this is some truth, as at the time they were considered to be members of the very lowest strata of society, with a distinct character that made them stand out. A matchstick woman was prone to wearing very colourful attire and high heels. Gaggles of them were often members of feather clubs, banding together to purchase and share hats. The bigger and more illustrious the feathers, the better, evoking a sense of a strong female-led community of women who love to stand out and express themselves through fashion. There are also stories of the matchstick women laughing with wild abandon as they went out on the town with friends, singing the most popular musical songs at the top of their lungs, filling the East End streets with their rendition of Ta-ra-ra boom die and knocked em in the old Kent Road. Although they had a sense of fun, close friendships and a clear eagerness to enjoy life wherever they could, Working conditions for the women at Bryant and May were anything but positive. Girls as young as 13 worked 14-hour days from 6.30am and due to the company's power and monopoly on the market, their wages had been reduced so drastically over the years they were paid less at that time than they had been 10 years previously. It seemed their rights were overlooked and the prevailing prejudice against women of their class caused their employers to look upon them with a sort of contempt, as if they were not really human and could be treated however they wished. This is also reflective in the many unreasonably strict rules that were inflicted on the women working there. They had to stand up all day and were fined for sitting or taking toilet breaks, There was also a penalty if their matches accidentally caught on fire, or if they had dirty feet. Considering the poor pay, being fined for such small things seemed wildly cruel. Many revelations like this were unveiled in an article published by a woman named Annie Bessant, who investigated Bryant and May closely. Bessant herself is a fascinating individual, who is closely associated with the strike and for many years was considered to be the ringleader. She was a devout Christian who, after marrying a clergyman, lost her faith. She scandalously had affairs with famous men like the atheist MP Charles Branley and George Bernard Shaw. Towards the end of her life, she bizarrely became the leader of a new religion and was a venerated figure in in India where she passed away and was cremated on a funeral pyre. Annie Bessant was a fascinating individual and perhaps is deserving of her own deep dive into her full biography. Bessant's unconventional life was also rather rebellious and has many feminist undertones. For example, in 1877, she was tried for obscene libel and she campaigned to teach contraceptive methods to poor women in the East End. She escaped prison but was splashed across the newspapers who loved the titillating story of the attractive young estranged wife of a clergyman being tried for obscenity. 
It was during Bassant's socialite years in the 1880s when she heard about the conditions at Bryanton Mays. This was following her meeting of Shaw and her joining the Fabian Society, which was a socialist organisation. At once she decided to investigate and interviewed a handful of women outside the factory. Her resulting title was published in the political paper The Link under the provocative title, quote, White Slavery in London. In this article, she revealed the fining system within the company, and one girl was penalised for altering a machine to prevent it from cutting her hand, and was told, never mind your fingers. Later, her workmate had her own fingers severed, and consequently lost her livelihood and ability to make money. Bassant observed that the girl she spoke to was very malnourished and frail, and clearly many of the girls were not being paid enough to support themselves. One 16-year-old divulged that she was paid a mere four shillings a week and could only afford bread for every meal. Sadly, her one solace was the rare occasion when she could go to the music hall and enjoy a bit of entertainment. One of the most damning revelations was that of the medical implications of working for Bryanton May and the devastating effects of something called Fossy Jaw. Fossy Jaw was caused by an individual ingesting a small amount of white phosphorus, which was used in the manufacturing of matches. I believed it helped the matches strike a good flame. The effects were horrendous. They would vomit, suffer from toothache and their faces would swell up. These early signs of the disease would progress and over time rot the lower jaw, causing pus and abscesses to attach to the gums, leading to disfigurement and an agonisingly slow death. Despite the severity of this, the only measures put in place were to simply dismiss people with a swollen face or force them to have their teeth pulled. In some instances, the girl might have been pregnant would have protested this ordeal, worrying about how it would impact her pregnancy. In these instances, the worker would be fired. Bassant called the matchstick women, quote, chattel slaves, in a bleak conclusion that highlighted the horrors of their treatment. Shortly after the publication of this article, on the 23rd of June 1888, the matchwomen of Bryanton May walked out and the strike began. For over a hundred years, the author of this infamous expose was assumed to be behind this action. However, the truth is not that simple. Bryant and May were outraged by the article and tried to bully their workers into signing a statement claiming they were happy and well treated. They refused to comply and the rumblings of a strike were stirred. This is also corroborated in a note that was sent directly to Annie Bassant, warning her. It says, quote, Dear lady, they have been trying to get the poor girls to say it is all lies that has been printed and to sign a paper we will not sign. We hope that you will not get into any trouble on our behalf, as what you have spoken is quite true. The company wanted to scare their workers by making an example of one girl who was a popular member of their community. 
the girl he was thought to be in contact with Basant was sacked. Following this, immediately her fellow colleagues put their tools down and thus the strike began, undeterred by Brian and May's threats of dismissal. The strikers assembled a picket line at the gates of the factory, electing six women to state their terms to their employers. This included the reinstatement of their colleague, an end to the fines and a dining room, as currently they had to eat in the workroom where toxic particles could settle on their food, ultimately poisoning them and leading to a fossy jaw. Perfectly reasonable requests that also did not even include a pay rise, it seems. Early in the strike, there was great camaraderie among the women, and by the end of the first week, all operations had ceased at Bryant and May. As well as picketing, they also paraded in the streets, attracting the police who were stationed in the same area. This was a time period of social do-goodery in the upper and middle classes. The East End itself was a hotbed of refuges, missions and charitable organisations designed to save fallen women. This was in a sense a way for women of a higher status to be useful and display their virtuosity. It is possible Annie Besant has taken on this role in the narrative of the match women's strike. As an interesting firebrand with a history of campaigning, it seems the impact of her article has overshadowed the efforts of the workers themselves. It is important to acknowledge that it was the women and the girls who prompted the strike to defend their friend and stand up to the unfairness of her dismissal, as well as highlight the many injustices they were facing. In recent years, there is a better understanding of what's happened, and Besant's involvement is no longer overstated. In fact, at the time of the walkout, she was working in her office when a group of matchwomen arrived asking for her. Besant seemed more concerned with the women blocking the pavement and only agreed to speak to them when three respectably attired representatives approached. This is how she found out about the strike. Taking this into consideration, it seems impossible that she took on a leadership role. In fact, she insisted she had nothing to do with it. I think it is a shame she did not show more solidarity and sympathy, considering the nature of the story she had published just weeks before. The strike continued for several days, and the women were able to go on living without any pay at all, supporting and helping one another. Their activities started to attract attention, and the dispute was discussed in Parliament. With editorials appearing in the Times, people were naturally disapproving of the treatment of the matchstick women, and even owning shares in the company was enough to tarnish the reputation of politicians and clergymen. Of course, this is also the period of another horrific East End event, with the savage murdering spree of Jack the Ripper. In an odd moment of overlap, Bryant and May received a threatening letter from someone claiming to be the infamous serial killer. Not all press was sympathetic, with one reading, quote, The streets and thoroughfares of East London swarmed with the girls who marched up and down the streets soliciting coppers, quite willing to pour their tale of hardships into every sympathetic ear. On Tuesday morning, a van load of pink roses drew up, sent down by whom it did not transpire, to be worn by the strikers as badgers. 
Here we can see the negative judgmental perception of women in this class, suggesting that the entire demonstration was something of a con. Despite this, pressure grew and eventually Bryant and May had to succumb to the strikers' demands. This was a monumental victory, considering they were entirely unorganised and the strike was a seemingly spontaneous event. This strike was instrumental in unveiling the concerns of the urban working poor and the hypocrisy of companies like Bryant and May who claimed to be liberal, while still treating their workers poorly and paying them very little. The women involved in the strike formed a union as a result, which became one of the largest in the country. The main players of the strike were revealed in an 1888 account, naming them as Eliza Martin, Alice Francis, Kate Slater, Mary Driscoll and Jane Wakeling. Another person who was involved was a woman called Sarah Chapman, who was born in 1862 as the fifth of seven children. She lived in Mile End, and usually her family did not move around much and she stayed in this residence for 17 years. Another unusual aspect of Sarah's life was that she was educated and able to read and write. On the census, she was even listed as a scholar. At 19, she was working alongside her mother and older sister as a matchmaking machinist. By the year of the strike, she would have been an established and well-known member of the workforce. And in 1888, she was listed as working in the patent area of the business as a booker and was on decent wages as well, which again would have highlighted her status. Sarah was one of the delegation of three who met with Annie Besant after the Match Girls March and may have been the author of the Dear Lady letter. Based on her background and position, she was clearly one of the respectable ladies Besant agreed to see. As a committee member, Sarah Chapman would have been one of the 12 who went with Besant to the House of Commons to meet with the MPs Robert Cunningham, Graham and Charles Conybeare, and would have also been a member who met with the London Trades Council and the Bryant and May directors in the boardroom of the factory to discuss terms, which must have been quite an intimidating experience. It is no surprise Chapman was elected to the new union committee as one of 77. Clearly, she was a strong-willed and intelligent woman committed to fighting for workers' rights. By 1891, Chapman was still working at the factory as a booker and was living with her mother in Bromley, close to Bow. She would leave shortly after to marry a cabinet maker called Charles Henry Dearman. Together they had five children and resided in Bethnal Green. Sarah's life was difficult. Her husband died at 55 and she also suffered the loss of her own children, including a son who died during the war. Although from today's point of view, this tragedy seems disproportionately cruel, in this time period it was perhaps all too common when living in poor conditions and in a time of war. Sarah continued to live in Bethnal Green until her death from lung cancer in 1945 at the age of 83. She was buried at a pauper's grave at Manor Park Cemetery, along with five other elderly individuals. This was perhaps due to a lack of money or issues with space, a 
as London was still bombed out following the Second World War. It is sad to think so many women and people in general who played a role in these important historic movements would have faded away like this, waiting to be rediscovered by curious relatives or intrepid researchers. While more powerful and wealthy people like Annie Besant are held up on a pedestal. Hopefully this episode has shone a light on these women as individuals, without who the strike never would have happened. A strike which helped spur on the new labour movement and ultimately helping to establish trade unionism. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode and learning a bit more about this very interesting event in history. Obviously it's been quite a long time since I've posted an episode and um, yeah I've, I've enjoyed the break and clearing my head a bit and I'm eager to get back into it so um, please let me know what you think if you have any thoughts on today's episode you can reach out on Instagram at the Museum of Femininity where I will also be posting some pictures of the matchstick women and also Sarah Chapman and Annie Besant so you can see some images that illustrate today's episode as well as this there will be some sources in the show notes which you can check out and until next time I hope you have a lovely day whatever you are doing goodbye <laughs>